welcome to the Kindness Chef podcast with your host Harpal Dutt. This is a longer episode called Sitting with a Different Expert. Each time I have a longer and deeper conversation about kindness where we serve you kindness and give you recipes to nourish your mind, body and soul. Hi Alex, welcome. Welcome to the Kindness Chef podcast. Well, thanks very much. It's good to be with you. Nice yeah. to see you again. Thank you. I mean, we had a good conversation, I think, pre-pandemic in London. Just before, yeah. Um, I, I had the, the really interesting experience of launching, of having my book you know, be published and start a book tour literally days before bookstores and everything else shut down. So um, it's been it's been it's been kind of a wild ride with sort of the sort of uh, since uh, since the book came out. So yeah, and just to let our listeners know that um, <clears throat> so this is Alex Sujung Kimpang, and you're the author of um, it says shorter as well as rest and some mm -hmm. other books. And you're part of this global movement to shorten working hours while improving productivity and profitability. And, um, you know, I think this is perfect for today. We're going to be talking about rest and a recipe for rest. And um, I quite liked, it's quite interesting, your company, it's called Strategy and Rest. What does mm -hmm. this mean? So, um, you know, I have a I have a background in technology forecasting and kind of strategic uh, or a strategic planning for sort of big companies, um, and so partly it draws on that background. Um, it also, honestly, uh, draws on the fact that rest is uh, is very nicely for me a top level domain. So rather than .com or .org, I could call it .rest. Um, and it also points to the sort of, uh, sort of the strategic value of sort of, of rest um, or for individuals, but you know, also for organizations. So that's where the name comes from. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that when you have a good strategy, you're more able to rest? And is this about our whole lives and our working lives? You know, you certainly should be able to rest more if you have a good strategy. Um, you know, the, certainly, certainly the formulators of the strategy ought to have that in mind, even if that's not an end for everybody. You know, unfortunately, we live in a world in which you know, overwork is seen as, you know, as a badge of honor and, and we, and there are you know, there are business models that are pretty explicitly built on the idea of, you know, bringing, bringing into an organization lots of young people um, mm -hmm. and either, you know, appealing to their idealism, um, satisfying their greed or, you know, sort of, uh, or drawing on their ambition and then, you know, working them as hard as you possibly can for a couple of years and then discarding them and sort of bringing in a new crop. Um, that is a strategy. It's not one that gets you a lot of uh, that, that that gets you a lot of rest. But you know, if you go back to the the you know the idea of strategy being some uh, being sort of a way of thinking about the future and about your own plans that make the best possible use of limited resources, then you know I think that uh, that any smart person 
um, would recognize that there that if you are if you if you want to be strategic about your life or your career, that your time and you know, and uh, your energy and your capacity to rest are all of you know are all limited resources that you should be strategic about. So yeah, I think there is and there is also that connection. You've learned this from personal experience. From personal experience, yeah, uh, you know, and also there's there's been uh, the, this is a classic you know standing on the shoulders of giants kind of situation where there's an awful lot of great work that's been done on the psychology of burnout, the relationship between overwork and productivity, um, that you know that kind of confirms what a lot of us sort of learn at first hand um, the hard way, you know, which is that we're cap that most, you know, we're all capable of sustaining brief kind of bursts of bursts of long hours or overwork, right? You know, when harvest season comes or tax mm -hmm. time or something. But the, you know, but the idea of overwork as a way of life um, is unproductive is is uh, is unsustainable and it's actually counterproductive that it is bad both for people and for organizations and there were you know there were better ways of working that um you know, that make make more strategic use of rest and that make uh, and over the long run yield better you know yield better and more sustainable results mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> I think, you know, what I'm really looking forward to learning is about, you know, how we do this, like really mm -hmm. rest and then how we mm -hmm. really work, because I kind of, I am quite open with my boundaries and, you know, I kind of, I don't know, I do a little bit every day, but I, I, I really want to like listen to what you have to say again <laughs> and learn. <laughs> Because I think, you know, it's really important in the world that we're living in now, so distracted, to have this strategy, like you said, it's an important word, strategy for ourselves about how we really work and then we really rest. Um, mm -hmm. But before we get there, what are, the, what are some of the benefits of um, rest, would you say, and shorter working days now with this uh, movement about shorter and four day week? Why, well, why I is think that important? Right, you know the. I think that the the benefits of rest to individuals are, you know, these are these are uh, these are things that we can all name for ourselves and we can all appreciate. Right, I mean the sort of sort of on a daily basis, our capacity to do anything, our mental reserves, our resilience, our sort of you know uh, our sort of emotional reserves are all, you know. Are all fuller if we are if we are well rested and if we are and if we are regularly rested. I think that the thing that's a little bit more counterintuitive is that these also have, pardon me, benefits over sort of the long run. That people who sleep regularly, who take vacations, who are more protective of their nights and weekends, and have better boundaries between work life and home life, are more likely to um, sort of age better. Um, they are less likely to fall prey to chronic illnesses, um, to, uh, to emotional or mental problems later in life, dementias, etc. And so not only does you know, a good night's sleep or turning off the phone, you know, 
and not checking your work email when you get home um, have benefits for your home life today. They can, uh, as a regular practice, it also has sort of benefits decades later. For organizations, rest turns out to be valuable um, <clears throat> for you know obviously the same reasons. A well-rested workforce is one that is more productive. It's also one that's more creative and better able to work with customers and clients, et cetera. But Taking rest seriously within an organization serves to sort of focus organizations and focus employees so that they, and provides a very clear incentive for them to figure out ways in which they can use their time or everybody's time more effectively, be more productive, and, and very often, as I see in companies that move to four-day weeks, do the same amount of work in four days that they used to do in five. And so as a kind of, you know, as a kind of forcing function and as both an incentive and a reward, it is a very effective way of promoting good practices and higher productivity within organizations. So that's the, you know, that's the principle, the principal immediate benefit for for companies or nonprofits or governments in sort of moving to, to, to shorter working hours and four day weeks. Yeah. And um, in terms of everybody, whether they're at work or at home, mm-hmm. I would say that a part of self-kindness is to really take good rest and also do work that fulfills you, that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. And um you know, you mentioned something before, and I think, you know, part of this is being able to say no and have boundaries and protecting yourself and your energy. So I think that's some of what you were saying. And as I'm getting older and older, I'm realizing about boundaries. And actually, I thought I had good boundaries, but I've discovered that, you know, it's a, I, I, I knew that I think boundaries is a constant work practice that's going to be for the rest of our lives. But I am, um, I've recently really realized, you know, like not just intellectually how important this is. And I'm seeing how this really relates to rest. And also, you you know, the book about shorter, it's having these boundaries, really good boundaries and protecting them fiercely to be able to take good rest and to say no. Um, what, how, how do you define kindness and how, how does this relate to the work that you're doing in the world? Because um, to me, it's coming across as it's, it seems to be part of a, I, you might not call it this, but I would say it is a kind of movement because um, it's, it's you know, I, I hear work-life balance, it doesn't exist. <laughs> and, um, you know, this doing more and more and more, um, you know, at the end when we're sick, nobody's gonna give us a medal. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what my question is now. <laughs> so how does this connect to kindness? Yes. I think in sort of in a couple ways. And one of them, like we all have the experience that um, sort of there, that sort of kindness requires time in order to flourish or in order to, or of in order to be practiced. Um, I think to to a degree that maybe we not, did not recognize until recently when sort of we you know when uh, when we have all gone into an era in which sort of you know 
time pressure is a kind of permanent uh, kind of permanent state of mo uh, state of being you know in which sort of overwork is a constant and in which boundaries between sort of uh, between work and other obligations and our own personal time have pretty have sort of been eradicated i think we all have that experience over the last year and a half of you know our commutes our commutes turning into moving from you know one side of our bed to the <laughs> other side of our bed yes. and you know having to simultaneously conduct zoom meetings while also homeschooling um you know has been a great reminder of the importance of boundaries for having a good life right not just for sort of you know for being able to get things done though it's important in that respect but I think as a, you know, as a, as a condition for being able to live well in the kind of, in, you know, in the, in the way that philosophers talk, uh, sort of talk about living well. I mean, I think that the, sort of, this also connects to kindness in the sense that um, kind, that when you talk to people who work in companies that move to four day weeks, one of the things that they do with that extra day is they sort of practice more kindness. They sort of, um, I, I was asking one, I was asking one company founder um, what their people do with their, you know, with their, with their third day of the weekend. And they said, they care. They care for, they care for themselves. Amazing. You know, they, you know, they eat better, they exercise, you know, they go for long walks, it's, you know, et cetera. They care for their families. They care for their communities. Um, but the, you know, the, the through point, the thread that runs throughout all of that is care of one kind or another. And, you know, what of, I think, you know, care, care in a sense is kindness turned into action and the, you know, and having more time unlocks or creates a space in which we are able to practice that. And so I think that the, you know, and you know, both in our own lives and and to a surprising degree also within organizations. The four-day week is something that promotes, uh, that allows for both greater expressions of kindness and greater expressions of sort of things that are close to it, right? Empathy, sort of respect for people's, you know, time and attention. Um, the other things that sort of, that, uh, that, that may be steps toward, you know, being kinder toward or, or towards one's towards one's colleagues. So, um, you know, it's not the it's not the first thing that you think of as sort of a consequence of a shorter work week. But I think that you know a, a, that um, you know that a society a, a society that has a four day week is actually likely to be a kinder society. Um, and we already see this playing out in, you know, in the companies and organizations that have sort of pioneered its adoption in, you know, sort of in the last few years, and especially in the last year um, during the pandemic. Yeah. So I think it's uh, it might not be the first thing that we think about, but actually, in terms of when people are at work, they're really at work. They're more present. Mm -hmm. And when we had a discussion before, you were saying that, you know, they're not checking Facebook, they're not doing other things, that they're, you know, really wanting to be there. And the same mm -hmm. is the practice when we're at home, whatever we're doing. 
But um, perhaps this uh, four day week is a structure that can help us to kind of switch on and off onto different activities. Um, I'm not sure that I've uh, kind of, you know, I'm not an expert in that yet. <laughs> but yeah. um, even one day, you know, I had, I took one day and I went to the beach and, you know, it's nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, imagine having that one day every week. Yeah. And, you know, that, and you can, it's not difficult to imagine the kind of transformative effect that that can have on people you know, have on families, have on communities. And so, you know, I, yeah, I, uh, uh, I agree entirely that this is, this is something that can, sort of, that can, sort of, uh, you know, make for, you know, make for significant improvements in, sort of, in people's lives. I think it's also exactly right that the four-day week acts as a kind of boundary, very obviously in the sense that you are, you know, you are you are constraining the amount of time, sort of in which, you know, in which an organization is going to work ideally in a week, and in order to make that work, it is necessary to be really thoughtful about time boundaries, about routines, about um, you know the the kinds of things that lots of organizations don't think about very much like you know out of hours email you know, and i think that you know one of the things that companies that shorten their work weeks very often do is impose rules around no email you know no email on saturday and sunday you know and you know no email during the week after you know six o'clock or, or or such because you know they want to take seriously the idea that when you are at work you know sort of you are really focused on what you're doing. And in exchange for that, the rest of your time really ought to be your own. And so, you know, the, and the success of the four day week depends, depends to a, uh, to a great degree on being able to sort of to build sensible boundaries that help focus people at work that give people the freedom to you know, sort of uh, to be creative, to do things that are restorative, to do things that are kind um, in their own time, and to keep those you know and and to respect both both enough to keep them separate um, and to treat each one as a, you know as valuable in a good life. You know, um, companies that move to four day weeks are not ones that take their you know, that take their work or their clients or, you know, their ambition less seriously than companies you know, where people are sleeping under their desks six months out of the year. Um, you know, these, the places that I have studied are Michelin-starred restaurants and you know, software startups that, you know, are founded by, you know, people from Google and Facebook and have venture capital backing. So, you know, these are places that are, you know, that are filled with super ambitious, intense people who really love their work and have great plans for the world, who love their craft, but who also recognize that, you know, the love of that craft does not have to be expressed in the form of, you know, 12 or 16 hour days end on end. And that if, you know, if they are good at this, if this is something that they that they truly love to do, then 
they need to find a way to do it that is not all consuming so that you know they are uh, so that they can you know they can so that they have lives in which it's possible to do this work for decades rather than you know the next three to five years and so I think that the uh, and the four day week serves as a way of building, you know, of building a whole kind of cascade of boundaries, of routines, of providing an incentive, of providing a reward that serves to really, I think, powerfully kind of reorder um, the way in which companies work and sort of to and delivers a whole host of you know a whole host of benefits some of which show up on you know spreadsheets and some of which show up in people's lives and you know probably will you know be described only you know, that they will only see you know much later or at the end of their lives yeah and um what are you noticing a shift in um like the younger people in like you're based around i think silicon valley mm -hmm. are you seeing any shift in i mean i think that some younger people it's like they have a lot more energy and so mm -hmm. maybe you know they want to do a lot more and you know but it can be it's like a little dangerous space i suppose without boundaries and information that you can get lost i mean i did in my first job mm -hmm. you know i didn't take care right. of myself well and i was there afterwards and then i had like pain in my hands in my back because i didn't know i was stressed and mm -hmm. doing too much so do you see because i i've met people from you know some of the big companies there but you know, everybody wants to work for them. But then I've seen what you said. They work really hard for, I don't know how long it, I, but then they need a year or two year to recover. Right. Um, I think, you know, the great, I think that um, the great question is how will the experience of or the last year and a half change the way that we think about the place of work in our lives and what we what we want more immediately um and i think we you know we don't we don't really have a clear sense of that yet um i think broadly speaking you know the fact that we are that here's what i mean here's what we do know you know we do know that um for various reasons people are uh, more hesitant to go into jobs that they feel are exploitative or sort of or are meaningless right i think that the you know the experience of you know the experience of the past year and a half you know the fact that in the united states something like 600,000 people have died you know sort of uh, died of covid um, has both left a kind of overhang of sort of collective grief that we haven't really acknowledged, but with, but which people who study grief say is very clearly present. Um, and I think has sort of raised, raised for lots of people questions about, you know, what they really want to do with their lives that they would not have asked until much later. And so I think that we are, you know, what, what I, th what I think we're going to see is a greater degree of sort of interest in sort of in work in work or workplaces that 
can that are designed for or cater to that you know sort of that craving for meaning um whether this and whether this will translate into shorter hours i think the answer is in some places it will you know even if 23 year olds or 25 year olds don't yet recognize the value of things like four day weeks there's a big part of the workforce you know people who are a little more experienced maybe you know especially people who have their first child people who've been in their professions long enough to be good at their jobs but also experienced enough to know, to kind of know what's wrong with the way the way the profession usually works and maybe also ambitious or arrogant or confident enough to think they could figure out how to do it differently. Those people are, I think, ideal candidates for, or people who, you know, who when offered the opportunity and offered the challenge of a four-day week really sees it with both hands, right? I think that the, you know, that, uh, that younger people, younger people are simply a little less likely to Sort of uh, to uh, to appreciate the value of more free time, um, and are more likely to see that you know in the short run they will get more benefit from you know, more work experience or of you know sort of more intensive work, and that e you know and that and that easing off sort of is something that's you know, that they can do they can do later on. Un you know, unfortunately, we tend to overestimate how long we can do that. You know, yes. even very smart people hmm. tend to spend too long in those kinds of environments. You know, I know I did. Hmm. And, you know, and as a consequence, most of us, you know, most of us have to learn these important lessons about rest and, you know, work-life balance or actually in, in Iceland, they, it turns out they don't talk about work-life balance. They talk about harmony which for some reason feels to me like a, a cooler way of describing it. Um, we all learn these things the hard way. Yeah. And so, but I think maybe one of the things we will see is a clearer articulation, going back to boundaries again, of a kind of, you know, a stage where maybe for the first couple years, as a young person, you do those kinds of longer hours, but one of the you know one of the ways that you prove yourself professionally is to be able to shift to a mode in which it's no longer necessary to spend you know 12 hours a day getting all your work done that one of the one of the badges of professional competence um, of expertise will be you no longer have to work like that right the really skilled person can do you know can do the same can do the same job or do more complex work in you know eight hours or six hours, you know Dan Ariely t tells this terrific story about um, a, about an encounter with a locksmith. He got lock Ariely, who's a professor of um, psychology at Duke University and one of the big figures in behavioral economics, um, wrote a wonderful book called uh, called Predictably Irrational, and he said, you know, he was locked out of his house. He called this locksmith you know, explained that he needed to get to a lecture. And so how quickly could the locks, you know, sort of, and so, you know, get me in as quickly as you can. The locksmith took apparently about 10 seconds to get the door open. And they were talking about it afterwards. And, and the locksmith said, you know, normally people, you know, normally people want sort of 
get mad if I do it that quickly, right? They want to see that this is hard. And so, you know, I usually have to slow it down. And if it takes me more time and it seems like it's harder, I get a bigger tip. If I get in really quick, then I don't get, you know, I don't get anything. And, and so it's a lovely illustration of our kind of naive assumption that, you know, the sort of that, uh, that things, you know, taking longer is, a, is kind of a sign of, of the difficulty of the task and of the dedication of the sort of, of the worker. Whereas the point, the, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the other thing the locksmith said was, you know, when I was first starting out, yeah, it would have taken me 10 minutes to get this lock open, but, you know, at this, but I've been doing this 20 years and I've probably seen 5,000 of these. So yeah, you know, I can get, yeah. So now I can get you in in 10 seconds without breaking the lock, without doing any kind of damage at all. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, most people don't recognize that. And I think Ariely gave him a big tip for, you know, sort of for his, for his skill and his speed, which was sort of, which was a, you know, a good deal for the both of them. But I think that, you know, one of the things that we may see is um, at a kind of macro level, a kind of recognition that the relationship between uh, sort of between work time, work time and professional competence changes as you become more experienced, changes as you get older. And so maybe, you know, I mean, my hope is that we will see this kind of institutionalized in promotions and professional development paths in the kind of culture of organizations and the professions. So, and I'll stop talking about that. No, this is a, you know, it's fascinating and it's, it's really good that the, there's, there's a conversation shift, you know, 20 years ago, I don't think we would have been speaking about this No. and maybe we didn't need to so much, but um, what, um, I'd like us now to, you know, I'd like us to, well, you to create a recipe for rest. <laughs> and, you know, what I want to help people with is how do they nourish themselves? So rest, you know, that's how I connected with you, I think, a couple of years ago on Twitter. Mm -hmm. You were the, uh, I think, only person I found um, with, you know, the title Rest. And at that time, that was part <laughs> of something I was doing in Kindness Cafes um, for people to take August. I think August is a beautiful, well, month in terms of summer in um, <clears throat> England and Greece and maybe America, not everywhere in the world. It's, it's a perfect opportunity for people to have that space. Things are a little bit quieter for people to mm -hmm. think about rest. So I'm really happy that we're doing this now in July. Yeah. And um, I'm gonna try and get this out really quickly <laughs> so that people can start to think about rest because things are perhaps right now that people are rushing you know, to get things done so that they can rest over the summer. And um, it's, it's, a, it's quite a good opportunity wherever people are, whatever they're doing to reflect and think about, I think, what does rest mean to them mm -hmm. and not rush themselves. I, I really, I like, you know, strategy and rest now. I think I didn't really understand <laughs> it properly the last time we met, but I, I see it's, uh, it's very simple, but quite helpful. These two words for people to think about, you know. Um, so, uh, what would you call a simple recipe for rest? What, what would be a good title of a recipe hmm. for people to practice? You know, I love to cook, but I confess I'm a pretty improvisational cook. 
So I'm not someone who bakes, for example, I tend not to, you know, I don't, I don't cook things that require measuring out precise amounts of, you know, this and that and following, you know, following a careful schedule. So when I was thinking about this, I was thinking more in terms of, you know, the things that, uh, the things that you want to have it in your, in in your, your ingredients that, you know, and, uh, things that you have in the pantry, things that you have in your sort of um, mise en place as, you know, as chefs would put it, that you would assemble into sort of any, you know, in any number of ways. And so, you know, I think that the, or the, uh, so what are those, and, you know, they're going to go together in different ways on different days or different parts of your lives. So what are those things? I mean, I think, you know, one of them is um, good sleep. Ob- mm-hmm. you know obviously a little less obviously are naps which turn out to be sort of you know super restorative and beneficial and beneficial both for our bodies and our ordered brains also it turns out for memory and for retention of of new of sort of new new ideas or learning um in ways that sleep scientists are really just now starting to understand sleep scientists for a long time were really interested in kind of what happened between like you know 10 a.m and 6 you know 10 p.m and 6 a.m you know sort of sleep during the night because lots of people complain about insomnia and so on um and but now they're starting to take seriously the idea that naps actually deserve you know attention with the same with some of these same kinds of instruments so naps are sort of naps are one important ingredient um another important ingredient are sort of is or a technique involves um a kind of layering of periods of intense work and uh, sort of and breaks um i'm sort of thinking of, you know, like a croissant or something else that's, you know, alternating layers of things that are folded together. But, you know, when you look at super productive people or really creative people, one of the things you find is that their days kind of look like these layers of, you know, 90 minutes of really intensive heads down, concentrated work, followed by, let's say, 30 or 45 minutes or so of a break. And this can be a walk around the block. It can be any number, you know, sort of any number of things that generally a little physical, a little, you know, that kind of get you up out of your seat. You do this and you repeat this pattern two, maybe three times. And that constitutes a really good work day. So I think that that practice in of layering periods of serious work and rest, that's another significant ingredient or technique. Um, a third one is what I call in the book deep play, where these are hobbies or other kinds of recreation that are as engaged, that are as me- kind of mentally and physically or emotionally engaging as our work, but they take us out of our work and often, you know, and, and are absorbing and compelling enough to or of uh, so that when we are doing them, we you know we're not we're not thinking about the office or or of our latest you know projects or whatever, and so these can be you know these can range from you know, playing a musical instrument to rock climbing to you know sort of to painting, um, whatever it is, it offers a combination of 
mental and physical or mental uh, sort of mental and emotional rewards similar to what we get at work, but in a different context, um, using different skills or kind of different parts of our brain, um, and often at a very different time scale, right? At the end of the two, you know, the two hours, um, you know, you've either, you know, completed the task in the video game or you've painted the landscape um, in contrast to the very open-ended and often ambiguous sort of nature of, you know, of, of the work that many of us do. Um, another important ingredient are sabbaticals. And indeed, I just, you know, I started thinking about or the value of rest in its place and sort of its place in creative lives on a sabbatical of my own. And taking these breaks of, you know, they can be as short as a couple weeks or a month, but doing that in, you know, in a way that gets you out of your normal physical location, sometimes sort of your, sort of your normal culture, gets you away from the office, you know, can provide create a creative boost and benefits that can last, you know, that can pay off for years and years. Even if you can't do that, the last ingredient I will flag it are sort of uh, are good boundaries for sort of your nights and your weekends, and you, particularly for people who are in high stress occupations or fields that have a significant degree of unpredictability about them. So, if you are a first responder, if you are you know an ER nurse, um, the sort of the col your your colleagues and peers who are able to make a career out of that who don't burn out are much more likely to be people who are really good at switching off in the evening, who protect their, you know, protect their personal time, who take their vacation time, who, you know, and who take their work seriously, but also recognize the need to get away from it in order to you know, recharge their, their mental and emotional sort of batteries. So, you know, I think, so, the so naps, the practice of layering or the periods of of deep work and sort of deliberate rest, um, protecting your nights and weekends, having those good boundaries, um, deep play sabbaticals. These are things that, in different combinations at different times of your life, I think are you know are the essential ingredients for or of for have for you know uh, for having more rest and i think also for creating space for you know sort of uh, creating more space and more time um for you know for uh, for practicing other important things you know like kindness yeah and um so how with the layering approach Mm -hmm. Is it, are you saying we don't necessarily have to spend four hours in one slot working? No, it's, no. It's, it's about, it could be 90 minute slots. Right. Three, no, you know, three of them over the day. Right. No, you know, I, I often see, um, so in rest, I looked at the daily patterns of lots of super creative people. And what I found was that they tended to work in a very bursty kind of way, you know, for one thing, and, and they worked far fewer hours than we would recognize as necessary for doing things like writing, 
the Fifth Symphony, if you're Beethoven, or, you know, or the Origin of Species, if you're Charles Darwin. And so what they did was they tended to work about four or five really serious hours every day. And they did tend to break that up. So, you know, going for 90 minutes, you know, like 90 minutes to two hours and then having a break and then going back and sort of doing some more work. And that was how they organized their days. And um, that kind of four to five hours per day or of, uh, period of intensive work is something that I see over and over again, not just in creative people, but in other kinds of fields. So um, elite athletes tend to be able to max out like serious workouts and practices at about, you know, sort of at about that. Um, in his famous study of violin students in Berlin, um, Anders Ericsson, whose work became, you know, sort of was the basis for Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours rule, found that you know, the really good violinists needed about 10,000 hours to become world-class at, uh, world class at you know, uh, as performers. Um, and that worked out to practicing for about four hours a day. And so that's a pretty consistent number. And then the 90 minutes to two hours is something that we have seen kind of backed up or sort of confirmed by studies of ultradian rhythms. So you know, we all have circadian rhythms, kind of rise and fall of everything from, you know, sort of awareness, attention, um, hormonal levels over the course of a 24 hour period. But there's also ultradian rhythms, which are kind of shorter rhythms sort of throughout the day. And attention seems to sort of uh, seems to kind of come and go in periods of about 90 to 90 minutes to roughly 110 minutes or so. Um, focus, trying to concentrate after that rarely delivers very significant results. And you're just kind of, you know, and after about, you know, after about two hours or so, you're working on something, you're just kind of staring at the screen. And it's far better to, at that point, to get up, to take a break, to look at stuff in the middle distance, um, and to come back to it rather than to try to just power through. And you're more and, likely to make a mistake. I think yes, it's to you certainly yourself are. a little bit. Right. And, you know, I think this is, this is a, this is a tough thing to, you know, often for sort of, uh, for people to learn how to do, um, partly because we underestimate kind of how tired we are when we get tired. You know, anybody who has children will recognize immediately that they, you know, they are really, really good at overestimating how awake they are right up until the moment that they crash. And it turns out at, you know, to a, to a smaller degree, grownups are kind of the same. We tend to overestimate how, you know, how capable we are in the face of fatigue. And indeed, one of the things, the pernicious things that fatigue does is of reduce our capacity for self-examination and self-regulation so that the more tired you are the less likely you are to recognize that you're that you're operating past your limits and that you need a break so learning how to do that and uh, and uh, is an important thing and it's also why you know creating things like a schedule where you have reg where you know, where you simply impose regular breaks on yourself in your daily schedule is a really valuable thing. 
Yeah, and the breaks can also look like cooking, cleaning, you know, other activities that we need to oh, yeah. do. As no, well I, as, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I uh, sort of, you know, I never unload, unload a dishwasher, you know, sort of, or fold clothes unless, you know, unless I'm working. So, um, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great kind of semi-mindless break from, yes. you know, from, from more serious kinds of, serious kinds of work. And in terms of uh, these 90 minute slots, you know, what do you mm -hmm. do? Are you in sync with say your energy levels? Do you protect the times in the day where you have mm -hmm. a high level of energy and then the lower energy, mm. you might wash the dishes, you might do the other tasks that we all need to do. This is a great question. And indeed, one of the things that you see um, the people I write about in rest doing is matching up their most intensive work periods with the times of day when they have highest level of energy. I mean, we know that our capacity for, you know, our willpower, decision-making ability, capacity to focus waxes and wanes during the day. And so one of the keys for kind of making your productive peak just a little bit higher is protect those times mm. when you actually are at your peak. And so for lots of people, what that means is starting work earlier than, you know, than, than many of us are accustomed to. So, you know, the stories about Ernest Hemingway being up and writing by 6am, no matter how late he had been, you know, out drinking the night before, are pretty, you know, this is, this is, this is not just a weird thing that, uh, that he did, but there are a lot of creatives, writers, composers, et cetera, who, you know, sort of who discover that working in the super early hours both gives them a level of, you know, uh, of energy that they don't have during the, during other times of day, and also a kind of, or a creative spark that can be difficult, that, you know, sort of difficult to call forth sort of, uh, you know, as the sort of as the day goes by and so there does tend to be a shift from you know working on your biggest most intensive stuff early you know first thing when you're undistracted when your energy levels are highest and saving stuff like dealing with email or holding meetings for the afternoon when you know sort of when you have less energy you know, when you've got a less attention, but you know, you're probably not so drained that those things that, you know, you can't do these, you know, these somewhat easier sort of these, you know, easier tasks. And then if you're just, you know, if you are, if you are, you know, working from home or working for yourself, um, having some kind of really clear break, you know, really just, you know, getting up and doing something as opposed to jumping over to Twitter for 20 minutes or Facebook and seeing what's, you know, what's going on, um, out in the world is, I think, an essential discipline. Um, partly because there were there you know there were there were benefits simply to you know getting up, getting the blood circulating, you know, etc. And that is you know, and that kind of that kind of movement is really important for sort of restoring our cognitive ability and our capacity to go back and of to you know dive back into a subject for you know another 90 minutes yeah and i think what you're saying about um 
people that you know wake up at 6 a.m whatever the time that works for them it's about creating this habit yes yeah. so that you know you maybe slowly slowly you get the book written mm -hmm. you know and, yeah and yeah and i think you know one of the one of the uh, one of the really interesting things is that you know we often have this model of of or this ideal of creativity that you know that assumes that people writes you know people have these you know have these ideas the sort of you know the lightning strikes and then you know sort of in that white hot moment of inspiration you rush to you know whatever surface or thing you're working on and you know you you know you finish the painting over the next 48 hours or the composition or the program or you know whatever um the reality is that the, much more often the process kind of happens in reverse so as you know as you know as, um picasso said the muse exists but it has to find you working so you know you don't get inspired and then start working you start working and then in the course of getting more and more immersed in it then you get inspired and you know the discovery that that is you know, that does that delivers more consistent results but it's also it also kind of sets a stage for you know for uh, for a more regular engagement with those kinds those you know those moments of kind of mysterious or sort of creative inspiration um is you know that's a that is a really important discovery that um you know people who have long creative lives make and they design you know and they and they spend a lot of energy making sure that their daily routines support that kind of work so that they can have the so that they can reliably have those kinds of creative experiences yeah, so I think it's really, really important because I, I wait for that inspiration, that excitement mm -hmm. to come, and I have to have a lot of meaning, you know, to get going. <laughs> uh, but then we'd wait all day, all year, and nothing yeah. would actually get done. So I, although I know what you're saying, I find there is a little bit of a struggle from, but the struggle for me and maybe for other people is that some creative people, they don't like routine, they don't like structure. But mm -hmm. I think if we talk about I don't freedom it might mean different things for different people but I think you know we are a little bit more freer in our mind in our mindset I think if we do have you know we might not like routines or structure I struggle with you know when I go to sleep at night and waking up in the morning I hear it's really good to go to sleep at the same time and wake up at the same time in the morning you feel much better but I, I struggle with this um, and I like, you know, this idea of, you know, every day at 6am and you do, you know, writing or something. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I was, uh, I was thinking that if you, if you can't do this all the time, even, you know, I'd say once a week or three times a week is a way to begin. Mm -hmm. You know, um, routine and regularity are, I think, essential for getting a serious payout for these practices. Um, that's certainly, that's certainly my experience. I would say that. Do you have any tips kind of, for I mean, I do, regularity? Yeah, well, um, there's, so for, 
I mean, let's stick with let's stick with with sort of uh, with an early morning practice because this is something that I do myself. It's something that I discovered, whose value I discovered when I was writing the distraction addiction, and it's something that uh, that I do pretty religiously when I'm writing a book. So I will get up generally at between five and five thirty. I will write for a couple hours, then I'll take the dogs out, then I'll come back and write for another couple hours. And starting this practice was a challenge. It probably took us, you know, probably took two or three weeks before I could, you know, I could do it reliably. Um, so, you know, the things that people, that people who study habits tell you is that, you know, it generally takes about three weeks for a new habit to take hold. And that certainly was the case for me. Also, I'm not a morning person, right? I'm the kind of person who at university started, you know, generally started looking at homework like around 11 at night. And my assumption throughout all of my undergraduate and graduate school years was that, you know, like real creative insights happened like around three in the morning. And that was the way I operated for years. And that was the model that I, that I carried at first when I was sort uh, of when I was uh, when I was trying to write, you know, with a job and with kids. And I rapidly discovered that that didn't work, and so I flipped the day. So it took about three weeks to sort uh, of just to get accustomed to the you know the practice of getting up that early. The other thing that I discovered was that has been essential has been set up as much as possible the night before, by which I mean. Like, you know, obviously I set the timer on the coffee pot. So, you know, the coffee is already brewed by the time, you know, by the time I'm awake, but I set out the clothes that I'm going to wear. Um, you know, I, I figure out what I'm going to be working on first thing in the morning. And I will write out a list, like a post-it that I'll put on my computer screen of the three things that I need, I need to work on. I do that the night before. And this has two benefits. One is I don't want to have to make any decisions at five in the morning. You know, the more, and the more that I do this stuff, um, the more I set this up, the few, sort of the more likely I am to actually get up. Right. I don't have, yes. I can't rationalize away or of, you know, sleeping in. Um, I've, you know, I have done this, I have done this for my future self and my future self now had better deliver. The other thing is that when you start, when you set up work on a creative task like that, you are more, you're more likely to kind of activate your creative subconscious to think about it overnight. Yeah. Um, and so when, you know, when you sit down at five in the morning and you know, flip open your laptop and start working. In a sense, what you're doing is just kind of, you know, it's a little bit more getting out ideas that already have uh, have been percolating in your in your mind overnight, as opposed to sort of, you know, confronting confronting this task sort of you know, kind of one on one. Um, John Cleese tells a story about when he was at Cambridge working with Graham Chapman on some sketch and he loses it and he can't tell Chapman that he lost it. So, you know, he's, uh, and so um, he rewrites it. And then 
a couple of days later finds the original. And so he compares the two of them and he says, you know, the second version was better. The jokes were sharper, they landed better, or the writing was crisper. And what he took from that was that even when he, you know, that sort of in the couple days that had passed between him and Graham working on this thing and him in him having a trying to reconstruct it, it's like his mind had kept working on it. Mm. And the evidence was that it was now a better product. He also said he had the he often had the experience of working on a bit and getting stuck at night and then going to bed and waking up the next morning and finishing it. And not only could he finish it, he didn't remember what the problem had been the night before. And that was you know, another piece of evidence that some part of him had kept, you know, had kept you know, sort of working away at this thing or sort of even while you know, his attention was elsewhere or you know, he was asleep. Now, of course, you got to do the work first in order for that process to happen. Um, but it is something, you know, but there is something there that you can harness and that kind of learns with you as this, you know, as you build this routine and you make this a daily practice that um, begins to appear and begins to contribute more reliably than it does if you, you know, if you follow the, you know, the kind of lightning bolt theory of inspiration. Yeah. So that's what, you know, so that's what, that's what I would, that's what I would advise people to do, right? You know, sort of get over the hump of the habit, plan everything else, plan everything out the night before, um, you know, and just stick with it and, you know, good thing and good things will happen as a result. Which has happened with your book, Rest. And yes. so it shows that it works. So yeah. going back to how we started with strategy, and it makes me think about eudaimonic happiness mm -hmm. um, when I was teaching positive psychology. So you may not feel happy, you know, waking up at five or six or seven or eight in the morning, but it's mm -hmm. this long-term happiness. Um, yes. No, there's, yeah, there's that, there's that distinction that, uh, that some people make between um, sort of pleasure and purpose, right? There's that book, um, Happiness by Design. Mm -hmm. And of course I've been reading it, but I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the author's name, though he's a... Is it Paul you know, Dolan, I think? Or... Paul Dolan, yes, exactly. He's at London School of yes. Economics. And I could, for some reason, I could remember he was in the, you know, he's in the psych department at LSE, but I couldn't yeah, remember yeah, his yeah. name. Anyway, but, you know, Dolan talks about happiness consisting of a combination of, of pleasure and purpose. And that you need, you know, and that, and that um, sort of experiences that uh, sort of that combine the two of them uh, are ones that sort of that make us that make us happiest over the long run. Getting up at five a.m. is not a pleasure for me. Um, <laughs> having ideas, you know, having that moment when you're writing something, and you know, some turn of phrase pours out or some idea, and you kind of wonder where that came from. That part is a real pleasure, but the whole thing has a high degree of purpose to it. And so, you know, even though it means that I've got to go to bed at like 9 p.m. Um, and I've got to do a whole bunch of other things in order to make this work and it isn't all pleasurable, it certainly does make me happy. So um, yeah, so you nailed it. Okay, so I don't want to take up more of your time, um, Alex, but um, 
So I see that you are offering uh, companies, you're doing some online teaching to help companies with this four day week. And is there anything you'd like to share before we finish? You, I know you use Twitter. How can people right. follow you? And so, yeah, um, you know, on, on Twitter, I am, well, on everything, actually, I am askpang, A-S-K-P-A-N-G. Um, Twitter is the most work-related thing. I'm also on Instagram, though that's mainly pictures of my dogs. Though, you know, if you go for that sort of thing, then, you know, that's awesome. Um, the company is strategy.rest. And, the, and then the final thing I will toss out is I've been involved in um, sort of a petition drive for individuals and a pledge for companies around the four-day week at action.fourdayweek.com. And so if you're interested in bringing the four-day week to, or some other kind of shorter work week, to your organization, or if you simply want you know, to, to add your voice to the to a you know a growing and global chorus that sees this as you know, not just an important thing to strive for in the future, but something that you know most companies can implement right now. Um, go to action.4dayweek.com and you know, check that out, and you know and um, sign up and pledge. So. Okay. Thank you so much, Alex. Um, uh, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us all and, um, good luck with everything in the future. Oh, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk. So. listen to the kindness chef podcast and sitting with us to learn more about ways that you can serve kindness to yourself and others to nourish your mind body and soul